Listen, if you would, to the following modern assessment of ancient Israel's God. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. Petty, unjust, an unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philistidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's the assessment of Oxford biologist Richard Dawkins in his 2008 book, The God Delusion. Now, of course, uh, Dawkins' assessment, he's not alone in that. There's a whole group called the New Atheists that would echo a lot of those sentiments. And you'll find those at a popular level even today in some form or fashion. Maybe not quite as acerbic as that, right? As severe as that. But... It certainly isn't new either. It certainly isn't new. In the second century after Christ, right, 144, 145 AD, a man named Marcion crisscrossed the Roman Empire, spreading his teaching that the angry, wrathful God of the Old Testament could not and should not be identified with the loving God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For according to Marcion, these were, in fact, two different gods. Two different gods. Maybe you've heard this critique before, something in this vein. Maybe deep down you can relate to this assessment. Maybe you felt... Also, like, 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 not to quite this degree, but maybe you've also felt that the depiction of God in the Old Testament is disturbingly harsh and to such a degree that it feels at odds with the New Testament's God of grace. You wouldn't be alone in feeling that way. Whether that reflects your thoughts and feelings or not, We need to look together this morning. I'd love to have us look together at this issue by considering the Old Testament itself. People can throw out claims left and right about who this God is, what he's like, what the Old Testament says. But we have the responsibility of looking at it ourselves, don't we? Let's do that together by turning over to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Bibles are in back if you need a hard copy there. Pull up your device. Navigate over to Nehemiah chapter 9 if you're using that, if you're using a device. Nehemiah 9 was, of course, one of the passages from this past week in our Bible reading plan. At almost 40 verses long, chapter 9 is a fairly long chapter. But as you were reading through it, I hope it felt familiar to you as well. I hope it felt familiar to you. Why should it feel familiar? Because a number of weeks ago, if you recall, we looked together at a very similar passage in the New Testament. Do you remember that? It was in Acts chapter 7. Acts 7. That was where Stephen was 
uh, standing and he was making his declaration before uh, a group of Jewish leaders. So what do Nehemiah 9 and Acts 7 have in common? They both contain these simple surveys of Old Testament history. They're not exhaustive surveys. They don't include everything, right? But both of those chapters, Acts 7, that's Stephen speaking, right? At Nehemiah chapter 9, the prayer contained there. Both of those chapters contain some of the major story beats of the Old Testament narrative. Abraham, Moses, the Exodus, promised land, the prophets. But but do this with me. Think back to Acts 7 when we looked at that passage together. Think back to that message. Think about the assessment of the Old Testament that we got through Stephen's lens in Acts chapter 7. How did Stephen talk about the Old Testament? What was the point that he was making by going back and rehearsing all of some of those different events that had happened? Why was he doing that? Well, we concluded that when we, when we studied that passage, we concluded that, that using, as when we use the Old Testament as a spiritual mirror, we recognize that human beings, including us today, including me, including you, we recognize that human beings are spiritually and disturbingly and relentlessly and disastrously stubborn. You remember that? You remember that? That's, that was the point of Stephen's whole message, right? He said, you guys, right, you guys need to remember where you came from. You come from a stock of people, and here's our history. Do you remember this? <laughs> we are a stiff-necked, stubborn people. And he would kind of outline that as he went through. As I explained then, take a look here on the screen if you would. As I explained then... Just as Stephen called his listeners to see themselves in and be sober by the ancient stories of the Old Testament, God is calling us to do the same today. So this was a, this was a way to be able to talk about using, with Stephen's help and the Spirit's inspiration, to talk about how you read the Old Testament. When you sit down and read the Old Testament, are you just looking to kind of be informed with, oh, that's an interesting story. Oh, that kind of tickles my, ah, oh, interesting, fascinating. How, how poetic. It's a very, very nice. Or are we listening to the word of God convict us even to say, wow, I see myself here. This is how I am oftentimes. This kind of doubt I see here, that's, that's what I struggle with. We talked about that reality, how God wants to use that in that very same way. As Stephen was hoping the word would be used with his listeners there in Acts 7. Now, as we look at our main text this morning, this is chapter 9. We're going to look at 30 and 31, verses 30 and 31. As we do that, listen to how this passage confirms what I just said about Acts 7, but also goes wonderfully beyond that idea. Listen to what we hear. Listen to what we read here. This is the a prayer. Many years, Nehemiah nine thirty. Many years you bore with them, the people of God, Israel. You bore with them and you warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. 
Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Isn't that wonderful? So, yeah, we're just pulling a little two verses out of this very long chapter. And you may have recognized some of what he's talking about there as you've been reading through the Old Testament or in previous readings through the Old Testament. He mentions the prophets. Have you read Isaiah or Jeremiah? Yeah. Hosea, you know, Jonah is a great story where he's going, but he's going outside of Israel there. But we would regularly see these prophets. Oh, we just read about Elijah, didn't we? The prophet Elijah, how he was speaking very specifically to the king, but also to the people. And how God would use them to, these prophets to call the people back. They, were, they, are, they are covenant enforcers, these prophets. That's what they were. They would come and remind the people, hey, you made a covenant with God. And guess what? If you follow it, you'll be blessed. He wants to bless you richly. But if you don't, guess what? <laughs> the curses that he told you about are going to come upon you. So these prophets did that. We read here in verse 30, Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. That started way back in the book of Judges, didn't it? Where you saw that pattern happening where they would turn away from God. God would send uh, the Sabaeans. God would send this group of people, this nation, the, the, the Edomites, the Moabites upon them. And then they would suffer and they would get to that point where they would cry out to God and say, we are in a terrible place. Please help us. And they'd come back and the pattern would start again. But we know, based on where we are in the text here, that it was even more intense than that. Because eventually, it wasn't just bands of raiders coming in and oppressing the people or pockets of Philistine domination. Eventually, in 722 B.C., it was the empire of Assyria cleaning out the northern kingdoms of Israel. Exiled. Taken out of the land. And then in successive waves ending in 586 B.C., it was the Babylonians coming into the southern kingdom, exile taken out of the land. We see this. They knew it. These people understood this. They were the, great, they were the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of those generations that were taken out. But here's what I want you to see. Number one, who's, who's speaking here? Who is praying here this prayer? Look at verse 5. All the text simply says in verse 5 is that this prayer is the prayer of Levites. Some of them are mentioned there. You'll see that in verse, I think it's verse 6. You see those, some of those names in there? So some of them are mentioned there. But these are the, some of the same Levites who were working with the people in chapter 8. Do you remember that scene? As the law of Moses was being read by Ezra. He stood up there kind of on a raised platform, it said, and he was reading out the law of Moses to the people. And it says wonderfully, just try to picture it in your head. It says wonderfully that as he was reading out the law, these Levites were working among the people, kind of weaving their way in and out. And they were trying to help everyone understand what was being said to give the sense of what this is why this is important. This is what this means. So this is what these guys were doing. And there, here in chapter 9, we've got this, these declarations of praise and this great prayer now being lifted up by some of these Levites. So let's be clear about two ideas that are emphasized by these Levites throughout this prayer preserved in Nehemiah chapter 9. 
Here's the first thing I want us to be clear about. You'll see it here on the screen. First of all, God's regular wrath in the Old Testament was a result of Israel's regular wickedness. We need to understand that in spite of what some of these severe critics will say, God was just not running around as a cosmic killjoy trying to ruin everybody's life or squash people because he was sadomasochistic, right? He enjoyed the pleasure of it. No, no, no. He was always responding as a just judge. He was always responding out of his righteousness in what he was doing and also out of his love. We would, I think we can say that. So God's regular wrath in the Old Testament, we're not trying to downplay it. It certainly is there, and it's there in very, in very clear demonstrations, disturbing demonstrations in places in the Old Testament. But it's, that regular wrath was a result of Israel's regular wickedness. Stephen was exactly right in his assessment in Acts chapter 7. Just scan with me through chapter 9. Like For, for example, look at verse 16. What does verse 16 tell us about Israel? It tells us Israel acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey God's commandments. That's exactly the point Stephen was making, wasn't it? Look at verse 17. They refused to obey and they were not mindful of the wonders. Hold on, just stop here for a minute. As we're reading through this chapter and some of these verses here, Stop and think about the descriptions that are given of spiritual resistance. Right? It's one thing to say, you've sinned and you're a sinner. And you go, yeah, you're right, I'm a, I'm a sinner. And you might have categories in your head of, this is how I've sinned. I, I spoke in anger to this person. Right? I looked at something I shouldn't have looked at. I was coveting something somebody else had. I, I was putting my faith in my money rather than in God himself. We might have some of these specific things that we're sensitive to or sensitized to because of our struggles. But Scripture provides with a very rich language of our spiritual brokenness and our condition before God. This is not, 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 few of these things are said or repeated here when he's describing their, their desperate spiritual condition. There's a lot of different ways it's described here, and we need to take those to heart and apply them to ourselves. For example, they refused to obey, right? They were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them in sensitivity to the gracious works of God in your life. The miracles that he has done for you. Insensitive to those things, not mindful of them, but they stiffened their neck. There's that word again, that phrase again. And they appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Wow, that's like a whole other thing that would take us a while to unpack, wouldn't it? The mindset behind that. Wanting to go back to your slavery? What must you think of your slavery? How must you reassess it and come up with some fanciful fairy tale about how it was, right? Hebrews calls that the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. In 9.18, the listeners are reminded of how Israel made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. 
Oh my goodness. I was about to say, holy cow. That would, that would have been, yeah, actually perfect at this point. Literally, holy cow, a calf. But to take the God, their redeeming God, and somehow say that he's this calf. Are we guilty of similar things? Making God, create, shaping God according to our image, putting him in a box, making, them, making him who he needs to be for us at the time. Living as if God existed for us rather than we for him. They made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, verse 18. And they had committed great blasphemies. We find that final phrase there in verse 26 as well. Listen for it. Nevertheless, verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient. They rebelled against you, language of rebellion. They cast your law behind their back. Word of God, heavenly communication, shink. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see it. This is where it goes behind me. Cast their law behind their back. Killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. 9.28 tells us they did evil again before you. And in verse 29, we read again, they acted presumptuously and they did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and they stiffened their neck and they would not obey. So these verses here from chapter 9, what do they show us? They show us that when Stephen was speaking in Acts 7, he was just following in the footsteps of these Levites. He's just making the same point that they're making here. He's talking about this pernicious Old Testament pattern. He's righteously indicting leaders of his day in this very same way. The leaders, the very same ones who had put Jesus to death. But as I indicated in that previous message, the mirror that is the Old Testament, right? This mirror that reveals our sinful ugliness is also a window onto the incomparable vistas of God's beauty. And that's what we get to celebrate this morning. (laughs) But you have to have that bad news, right? I've got to remind myself and you of what these guys are talking about here that Stephen drove home so powerfully when he said it, but Nehemiah 9 excels in a different way here. So the second idea The second idea or emphasis that we need to be clear about in Nehemiah 9 is this. While there is a weightiness here in regard to human sin and divine justice, the Old Testament is wonderfully lopsided in regard to God's incomparable grace and mercy. Wonderfully lopsided. 
As I've pointed out, there are seven or eight verses in this prayer. We just talked about some of them. There's maybe one or two after our main text that you could look down and kind of scan down and see. So maybe seven or eight verses here that emphasize the people's wickedness, their spiritual condition. And in no way here are the Levites trying to get away from that. They are not trying to downplay that. They don't mince words with their listeners. Their conclusion in verse 33, take a look. Verse 33, their conclusion is on point. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. I don't hear somebody trying to rationalize their sin, do you? They're honest. These guys know they deserve everything that they've suffered. God is not capricious. God is not a sadomasochist. It's not maniacal, megalomaniacal. He's not any of those things. They knew what had happened to them was a result of their own sin. But in comparison to those seven or eight indictment verses here, we find almost 30 verses extolling the righteousness and goodness and mercy and grace and patience and generosity and faithfulness of Yahweh. Example after example from Old Testament history is provided here by these Levites. Levites, too much for us to catalog carefully this morning and talk about all these things. No, but, but, but just one way to see what they're saying here, one way to see this lopsidedness is simply to look at how the adjective greats is used in this chapter. As we've already seen two times, we read about the nation's great blasphemies. Did you see that? Verse 18, verse 26. But as you continue through, as you read through this prayer, you will find five times in this prayer compared to those two, five times we read about God's great goodness. Verse 25, verse 35, his great goodness. And verse 19, verse 27, verse 31, God's great mercies great blasphemies great goodness and mercies this is the language that they are using that gives you the ratio right that gives you a sense of the ratio here and that covers the whole old testament there's absolutely no doubt that the emphasis here is on god's incomparable grace and mercy. Just look at how this truth is expressed by way of contrast in verse 17, Nehemiah 9, 17. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery. But you are a God ready to forgive. Ready to forgive. Postured to forgive. Leaning already into forgiveness. Running like the father to the prodigal. You are ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. 
So notice when the Levites declare in verse 31, that was our main text. Notice when they declare, for you are a gracious and merciful God, what are they doing? They're referring back to verse 17. They're, they're kind of riffing off of verse 17. Like we just said, you are a gracious and merciful God. And verse 17, if you look at it, it should sound familiar to you if you have had any time in the Old Testament. If you've ever read or studied the Old Testament even for a little bit, those verse, that statement should sound familiar to you because it is, in fact, take a look, one of seven places throughout the Old Testament where this same confession is made about the God of Israel. And when is this confession from verse 17? When is it first declared? Exodus 34. When, after Moses asked to see God's glory, God reveals himself to Moses. But the revelation is less visual and more auditory. It's more about God's proclamation of who he is. And that proclamation of who he is, the God who rescues from Egypt, is repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. Why? Because it's so precious. It's so powerful. It's so stunning. Because Israel knew this was their God. This was their God. This is what he's like. The account here in Nehemiah is probably the last historical setting on the timeline. It's probably the last historical setting recorded in Scripture where the same confession is repeated by the people of God. And it's not surprising that this confession is affirmed here, is it? This remnant of Israel that had returned from exile after their covenant disobedience to God, after being vomited out of the land, this remnant... Yes, they found themselves back in the promised land, but they were facing very real dangers and hardships. That's why the prayer ends the way that it does. Look with, look with me at verse 32. After this regular repetition of the, the pattern, right? We sinned against you. We sinned against you. We turned from you. We treated precious holy things as if they were trash. This is how we were towards you. And every time the prayer of the Levites is, what did God do? He was gracious. He was faithful. He was patient. He sent to warn them. He wanted to turn them back. He was faithful. He was great. He was merciful. Here's the end. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love let not all the hardship seem little to you there's the request right i think that's the first time the request after all these verses finally there's actually a request in the prayer what we're going through now look at verse 36 behold god we are slaves this day in the land you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts behold we are slaves and its rich yield this land promised land goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins they rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please and we are in great there's the word great distress it's no wonder they go back and celebrate this is it It's no wonder they go back and highlight the common confession of the Old Testament. 
I gave you seven verses. There's seven verses there on the screen. But bits and pieces, broken kind of pieces of that statement, longer statement, right? Gracious, merciful, uh, steadfast love, slow to anger, abounding in yeah, steadfast love. All of that, it's, it's pulled apart and found in pieces all throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes recombined in different formats, different ways. Sometimes you'll just get the slow to anger and abounding steadfast love part. Sometimes you'll just get the gracious and merciful part. It's all over the place. It's no wonder they're going back and highlighting this, is it? Well, we could ask, is this post-exilic community, are they simply emphasizing God in this way because that's who they need him to be right now? No, the Levites are not distorting the Old Testament depiction of God. They are celebrating it. They're going back and they are mining it deeply. They are trying to put it in front of themselves and the people. The lopsidedness of this prayer in Nehemiah 9 simply reflects the lopsidedness of the whole Old Testament when it comes to the righteousness and goodness and mercy and grace and patience and generosity and faithfulness of Yahweh. A brother asked on the MeWe site this week, Steve kind of jumped in and answered too, about how all the complexity of the Old Testament laws and rituals and sacrifices and how strange it was. And we talked last week, he and I, about the specifics, all the details. Think about all those details given about the, the Levitical requirements for sacrifice, whether it be an animal whether it be a, you know, a lamb or a goat or a bull or maybe a pigeon. Maybe it's a grain offering of some sort. But there were very specific requirements, weren't they? And there were requirements about things like mildew in your house. About the kind of clothes that you would wear. Right? The, the, the fabric that it was. You couldn't have a blended garment. Really interesting things. And the dietary laws, we, we know about those. You could read those and just go, that's really weird. Like, oh, wow, I'm glad, I'm glad that's not applicable anymore. Or you can stop and you can step back and you can see what all of those laws were communicating. God wanted his people to be near him. He wanted you to close to him he wanted you to drink deeply of his goodness of his generosity of his mercy of his faithfulness of his kindness his patience he wanted you to know those things and if you accept the testimony of the word of god in the old testament you Desperately need those things. Because you're not okay. Apart from his grace, you are not okay. I'm not okay. We're in a bad way. Big time. But God gave those things because he wanted to be with his people. And yes, it was like a group of kindergartners, right? He had to work with them with with colors and picture books and stories and saying okay i want to show you something this is bad this is sin 
and it corrupts us and it makes us all black and it's like a crayon all over it. But I'm like white and pure, right? And these things don't go together. So what do we have to do? Well, we have to clean this up. We have to make sure this is okay. And then we can be like this together, right? Yes, if we do these things. That's all he was doing. He was showing them that. He was teaching them principles about sanctification and sacrifice. He was teaching them what his, what his righteousness, his justice required through these strange things. But don't miss about those sacrifices. Don't miss about those ritual purity laws. Don't miss that they speak, they declare everything about the graciousness of our God. That he's gracious and merciful because he didn't have to. He didn't have to give them that system. He didn't have to give them a way to get close to him. He didn't have to dwell among them in that tent over the mercy seat. He didn't have to do any of that stuff. He did not need to save them from their slavery in Egypt. He could have left them to rot there as miserable sinners. But that is not our God, brothers and sisters. You see, even in places you don't recognize it, the Old Testament is so lopsided in the testimony of God's grace and mercy. It is so full of it in a wonderful, wonderful way. Brothers and sisters, this is wonderful news, isn't it? And if we circle back to the outset of our study this morning, I think we can say that critics of what the Old Testament reveals about God, those critics we heard from before, are either guilty of intentionally downplaying this lopsidedness simply to advance their own arguments. Oh, let me paint this picture of God. I'm going to leave out all this other, what I call irrelevant information and tell you all the bad stuff. They're either doing that or they do not, as sinners, they do not want to grapple with the severity of our sin and the rightness of God's justice. They're unwilling to deal with that. And therefore, maybe they tend to minimize the regular and repeated truths we're talking about. The stunning, staggering, beautiful, and reassuring truths of the Hebrew Bible about God's goodness and mercy, and grace, and patience, and generosity, and faithfulness to sinners like us. But we, we aren't those critics, are we? We aren't those critics. We are God's people. Amen? We are God's people. We are the recipients We are the beneficiaries of his righteousness and goodness and mercy and grace and patience and generosity and faithfulness. We are the beneficiaries and we can know and we can experience these very things with a far greater degree of confidence than even the Levites of the Old Testament because of Jesus Christ. That's where we stand on the Bible timeline. We can know this. You see, the weakness of this remnant's position, how wonderful they had been restored to the promised land. But the weakness of their position before God had nothing at all to do with who God was or what he had revealed about himself. Lopsided. It had everything to do with their sin. 
There was no deficiency in the revelation of God. He had made it abundantly clear that he was gracious and good and kind and patient and merciful, forgiving, faithful. You see, those who were righteous by faith among the Israelites, among the Jews, those who were righteous by faith knew that that this was their greatest danger. That was their greatest threat, their own sin. They understood that. That's why when we meet these righteous by faith people in the New Testament, people like Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna, when we meet them, they are eager for what? They are eager for the Messiah. Why are they eager for the Messiah? Because they believe that the Messiah could in some way make it possible for them to experience in the fullest possible way the righteousness and the goodness and the mercy and the grace and the patience and the generosity and the faithfulness of God. That he would do that. How would he do that? By dealing with in some way the sin that so regularly poisoned their relationship with their creator. To break that pernicious pattern from the Old Testament. And that's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly what he did. Look at these verses. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. And in light of that adoption, the Apostle John exclaims, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Friends, these are two Jewish men who are exclaiming the fulfillment, the radical the radically, subversively wonderful fulfillment of what God had promised to do. The God of their fathers, the God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, is now our Father through Jesus. He's our Father through Jesus. For those who trust Him, Christ has ended the pernicious pattern of sin and judgment. It's done for those who receive him. Please hear this good news this morning. The great goodness and great mercies emphasized in Nehemiah chapter 9, that lopsidedness, those are fully ours through so great a salvation, as the writer of Hebrews put it. They are ours. That means that life-giving lopsidedness of a gracious and merciful God is available to you this morning. For those who have never tasted this incredible reality, it is available to you by faith today. Simply reach out to God and receive it through Jesus Christ. Admit, Admit your need for it in light of what we've talked about this morning in regards to sin. Reach out and receive it. For those who have tasted, who have received, this lopsidedness is available to you every time you open the Old Testament. 
Yes, as we read through the Old Testament together, it should continue to be a mirror to us of our desperate condition as those who are still wrestling with these stubborn hearts. Some principle of a stubborn heart that's still there, even though we have a new heart. But with a frequency, with a frequency that is proportional to its own lopsidedness, your time in the Old Testament should also and always be a window onto the rich and reassuring reality that gracious, merciful, and God to whom the Levites cried is your Father in Jesus. Look what His Word tells me about my Father. This is my Father who loves me unconditionally. He is with me. Brothers and sisters, that God is now your God through the righteousness and redemption of Jesus Christ. He is your God. Therefore, every single day on its every page, you can drink deeply of the righteousness and goodness and mercy and grace and patience and generosity and faithfulness of this God who has become your Father in heaven. Let me ask you this simply. Will you come to the Old Testament this week with that mindset? Because if you will not, then trust me, you will be looking for that grace, that mercy, that goodness, that patience, that generosity, that faithfulness somewhere else. And when you are, you'll determine that either people are letting you down and you'll be bitter against them. Or you'll keep going to the same well to drink and there's nothing there. And then you'll dig deeper. And then maybe you'll try another empty well. And another empty well. You will be looking. So why not satisfy that thirst in the richness of what the Levites remind us of in Nehemiah chapter 9. And all of it, all of it is secured by Jesus Christ. As 1 Peter 2 reminds us this, this is a glorious statement. Look at this, 1 Peter 2. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As exemplified here in Nehemiah chapter 9, let this lopsidedness of the Old Testament shape your prayers, brothers and sisters. I challenge you, outpray these Levites. Outpray these Levites. Right? Learn from them, but outpray them in light of this. What we've seen here, as we see here as well, let this lopsidedness shape how you tell your own story. What are they doing here? They're telling the story of their people. In fact, take time maybe to write out a survey of your story with God. 
Be honest about your sin just as they were honest in this prayer about their story in terms of their relationship with God. Be honest about your sin. But if you belong to God through Jesus, by grace alone, through faith alone, then also be accurate about the lopsidedness of God's abundant righteousness and goodness and mercy and grace and patience and generosity and faithfulness in your life. All of it secured by Christ. That's what we miss often, right? We, we play up our needs and our hurts and our struggles and we downplay the rich blessings of God. How abundantly we've received. How quickly we lose sight of the wealth of what we're given every single day. I'm not saying that so that you minimize the struggle. I'm saying that so that you meet the struggle armed and equipped with everything God has given you. The truth about who He is. The truth about so great a salvation that we have in Christ. As we talked about last time, a final encouragement. Set your heart to not only study these truths like Ezra, but also to live in them, to do them, right? To live in them, live in light of them, And to teach them. Study, do, teach. You remember that from last week? Study, do, teach. Teach them. So let me ask you this. In what ways might you encourage a brother or sister in this rich and reassuring reality today or this week? Maybe memorize one of these verses from Nehemiah 9 or one of the seven that was on the screen there about the nature of God. Maybe something from the New Testament that's relevant as well that we talked about. Maybe memorize one of those verses and then pray specifically for an open door. God, give me an open door. I'm going to memorize this and I'm going to do so in faith, trusting that you're going to give me an occasion to share it with someone. How about that? In, In what ways might you share this wonderful lopsidedness with someone in your circle this week? An unbeliever. Again, maybe memorize one of these verses. Ask God for a specific open door. Make yourself available for a meal, a visit, a call, and then arm yourself with these amazing truths because invariably someone's going to bring up a struggle that they're facing. And guess what? You're going to be ready. You're going to be ready to share a word with them and say, but praise God, He is faithful to us and He's patient. I know you're struggling, brother, sister, but He's so patient. And guess what? He's ready to forgive you. He's, he's postured. He's leaning in to forgive you. And we know that because of Christ. Think about that. Pray about that. We are all called to speak the truth in love and all of us desperately need to hear it regularly from one another, don't we? May God bless us in these ways. Amen? May he bless us with these truths. So let's pray this morning as we finish with a thankful heart, thankful for our gracious and merciful God, a thankful heart for the Old Testament story that is overflowing with declarations and demonstrations of his unrivaled goodness. Would you pray with me?